1: We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love It podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com.
0: Christy Shriver. We're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Today is our third discussion of the controversial political handbook, The Prince. In week one, we discussed the man, Niccolo Machiavelli, uh, and we dropped him into his place in history. Last week, we discussed chapters one through eight and highlighted four terms that pervade the book from the beginning to the end. And those terms or ideas are state, virtue, fortune, and occasion, or as you say in your Italian
0: accent,
1: <laughs> we discussed a few of uh, Machiavelli's examples of men uh, who exhibited these characteristics as we ended our discussion last time. And those were the people of uh, Moses, Romulus, Cyrus, Hiero of Syracuse, and, and we left off with the notorious Cesare Borgia. Who we didn't talk a whole lot about, uh, but we said we'd get back to that this week, and we will. This week, we turn our attention to the paradoxes within the second part of the book. We will begin to introduce the famously notorious maxims that have given him his unique place in history.
0: And there's some good stuff there. (laughs) But going back to where we left off, he was listing a few tips Now, we're calling them tips, but, you know, the real word is maxims of things men and women of great virtue should practice. These are essential ideas to keep in mind. Two being to always build your foundations and build your arms. Something I've kind of lumped together because they're related, although not exactly the same thing. The first chapters of the book delineate the ways people get to positions of power. And we ended our discussion with his chapter on villainy. And that's one way to get to power. You can be a treacherous villain. And I want to stop there because it leads us to the great moral ambivalence that's kind of inherent in any discussion about Machiavelli. And the question has always been, is he a promoter? of villainy or tyranny, or is this book something of a disguised warning to regular people about people in power and how a lot of them will exercise villainy and tyranny on unsuspecting populists or their unsuspecting competitors? So Gary, do you have an opinion on that?
1: Hmm. (laughs) Uh, Well, the short answer is no, (laughs) I don't. Uh, I do not believe Machiavelli wrote this book as a guide to how to be a villain. And I do not profess to be a uh, Machiavellian scholar in any way. But it's remarkable to me that that question, um, as is almost everything involved in this man, is much more complicated uh, than my answer denotes. Because there's so much that seems really ironic about what he's saying. Does he really mean for everything he says to be taken literally or not? It it seems to be the argument, and there is no consensus on the answer to that. Baruch Spinoza, a uh, political thinker who came around about 100 years after Machiavelli, did see this book as a cautionary tale for citizens to understand the nobles or the elites and the leaders that were ruling their world, he didn't see uh, Machiavelli as being on the side of the nobles or leaders of the society at all, but on the side of the people. Uh, and he saw things that we're going to start talking about here in a moment, uh, not as behaviors to practice, but really as behaviors that leaders will practice most assuredly, and regular people should be aware. In order to see through them, uh, he see this, he sees this book as an attempt uh, to get princes to redirect power from the nobles that 's his word for what today we would call the elites, you know those governmental workers and powerful people who influence them and and direct it back to the people who he found to be a much better sort of people than elites. I do need to say, um, this is definitely not to be confused with anything Marxist, so don't make that mistake. We're not talking about class warfare or anything like that. Uh, Machiavelli is talking about liberty, which we established early on, about being free to make your own choices and to live the way you would like to live, and people who would like to impose their will on you, how to protect yourself from that. And as we said in the first episode, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau Had a similar attitude as he saw this book as a warning to people about princely rule, about the leaders.
0: So do you think that's the most practical way for a modern day reader that's not necessarily vying for political domination (laughs) to read and think about this book?
1: Uh, You know, maybe, although I'm not sure it's simple as even as that, uh, because at the same time, uh, another perspective is also just as convincing in its interpretation, and that is to read it through the lens of what American political theorist Michael Walzer referred to as the problem of dirty hands
0: dirty hands uh, that's
1: a metaphor he <laughs> lifted from a play by satra of the same name the basic idea walzer is taking in his interpretation of machiavelli and something that lots of people have taken as the main takeaway of the book is that the ends justifies the means oh dear i've heard mm. that before uh, it's not always possible to be good to do good and if you want to keep your state, do good, get glory, all these things Machiavelli says you have to do, you will have to get your hands dirty. Uh, this perspective sees the descriptions in the following chapters as a, a presentation really of difficult moral compromises that are essential if you want to keep your state. And a man of great virtue is one who knows how most effectively to get away with dirty hands while appearing to have clean hands. And uh, it is a man of great virtue who knows when these kind of ambivalent behaviors are useful and maybe even good.
0: Well, to me, that sounds a little (laughs) self-serving and really a justification for anyone to do anything they want, be as corrupt as they want, as long as they say they have a good Moral outcome in the end.
1: Well, yes, that's the promise of every politician, right? Uh, and that is exactly the well deserved criticism uh, of proponents of this kind of moral relativism, which is what we call this morality is relative, and I get to decide what moral is based on my circumstances. Uh, but at the same time, we all know it's the real world. Um, let me give you an example. This is a true life example. So, um, a non-governmental aid agency wants to go to a third world country to provide vaccinations for children against polio. This will save thousands of lives. And they get to the border with all the vaccines. Papers are in order. And a corrupt border agent says they have to pay a $10,000 border crossing fee, something that we would call a bribe. Uh, something that he just made up on the spot. And It is, of course, illegal to pay bribes and against the moral constitution of their organization. But at the same time, they have the vaccines that will be thrown away if if they don't do something with them. And most people would say, uh, pay the money and move on. You must do something bad in order to do good. So the question that is really raised by Machiavelli is, if you are dealing with villains and thugs, you will always lose if they can use your morality against you and that's the real dilemma
0: well although a uh, little paradoxical at best <laughs> it seems to me that it's not hard to see that maybe as you read the book you could think of it both ways both and not really either or interpretation of reading the book and Machiavelli is absolutely convinced that we are always living in a state of war, which is just an interesting way to think anyway, internally and externally. And if you love your freedom or your ability to live your life the way you want, you must be observant and aware of the internal and external threats posed by honest competitors, but also as well as thugs. And knowing the difference to treat each one is really what, Constitutes virtue.
1: And I think that's a very unique and interesting explanation.
0: Well, he complains about the Florentines, and I have to admit he'd probably complain about us today because he said they were content, uh, that they were enjoying a culture of liberty, and they didn't really have a healthy respect for the dangers or the aggressive nature of the world around them. They're just kind of oblivious. And they were oblivious to the selfish intentions of the elites that wanted to rule their state, those that lived there and those that were coming in from the outside. In his case, he's talking about you know France and Spain. But he wants to convince his readers not just of the aggressive nature or the selfish intentions of the competitors that are coming for their liberty both inside and out, but he's absolutely convinced that we must be mindful of the deceitful use of language that everyone is using and they're willing to use to lie about their ultimate end games.
1: Hence one of my favorite sayings that I actually created, politics is the art of masking your true intentions. I guess so.
0: (laughs) I mean, that's certainly Machiavellian. And he sets up this argument about internal enemies. So he, he thinks of them the same in some instances, but then he separates them out in others. And here in chapter 10, he discusses nobles. Of course, noble is an old-fashioned word. We don't have nobles today, Uh, but don't think it's not a concept. We all clearly understand the Renaissance people use the word noble, but we use the word elite. And although today's elite don't identify themselves with medieval robes or wear crowns, Honestly, they still wear identifying outfits <laughs> and identifying labels because it's important that for nobles that everyone know exactly who they are and that they have money and connections. And often these money, this money and connections are not commensurate to their skill level or at least their perceived skill level from those of us as compared to their personal worth. Machiavelli was not a member of the nobility. And he says this, he who becomes a prince by the help of the nobility has greater difficulty in maintaining his power than he who was raised by the populace. And then he goes on to say, the aim of the people is more honest than that of the nobility. The latter, meaning the people desire, and I'm sorry, meaning the nobility, the latter desire to oppress and the former merely to avoid oppression. This leads us Back to the tips. We start again. Tips of the virtuous prince. We started this last week, and we ended with tip number seven. So today we'll start with
1: (laughs) Machiavelli
0: tip number eight. Be very leery of the elite.
1: (laughs) Hmm. Okay. Uh, Well, Machiavelli thought princes must pursue loyalty, and he simply didn't think the elite class was a loyal class, and he was not wrong. Uh, He believed if you depend on the elite to get to power— you have a problem, and you must consider how to manage those elites that got you there. First, uh, you can make them totally dependent on you. Uh, this uh, will later on be the strategy of um, Louis Sixteenth in Versailles, He who literally made every single noble move into his palace. And
0: That's a little excessive. <laughs> it is.
1: Uh, talk about concentrating power. Uh, but Machiavelli says if they are not totally dependent on on your success for their success than you are to think of the elites as your secret enemies because they think more of themselves than they do of you.
0: Well, Machiavelli believes it's far easier to satisfy or make happy regular people than the elites because... They, the elites, want something regular people don't want. Regular people want to be left alone, and they want you to protect them from harm. They expect you, really, because you're in control to oppress them. So if you don't, you automatically just seem awesome. And this creates loyalty to a prince who is willing to protect their liberty. In fact, and he's going to return to this in chapter 10, although it comes up all over the book, uh, in various places, it's more than just a tip. Maybe it's one of the key principles in the whole book. Uh, people will be loyal to you as long as you avoid doing things to them, which he'll delineate as well, that make you hated. So Machiavelli, tip number nine in acquiring virtue, whatever you do, do not allow yourself to become hated or despised, and let me throw in some Italian, odioso or contenado. I can't say that (laughs) one word, right? Um, Contenando. You don't have to be loved, but he's going to make a distinction between not being loved, and he's saying it's not the same thing as being hated. A person who is hated will lose his state. Machiavelli makes it very clear. This is one rule to which there are no exceptions. Wow.
1: Well, and of course, he ends chapter ten uh, with one of the more practical tips, and it's even a good tip for parenting if you want to apply <laughs> Machiavelli, Machiavelli to your parenting. parenting. So, uh, for this, is for all the moms and dads out there, tip number ten: It is the nature of men to be as much bound by the benefits that they confer. As by those they receive. This is so interesting. It's an interesting idea. It's worth stopping here for a moment and thinking about how counterintuitive this is.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned parenting because parenting is a good way to visualize this principle. So many parents think, and it's natural to do so, that when you give your children things, you're buying their loyalty. Maybe you're even buying their love. But Machiavelli says, you do no such thing. You're actually buying expectation or entitlement. If you want loyalty, you shouldn't give something. You must demand something. You must demand an investment because we love those things in which we invest ourselves into, not the things that come easy to us. For example, if you want your child to love his or her home, then make them sweat to keep it clean. Then when someone wants to come in and trash it, they'll absolutely lose their mind because they spent their time and energy in making it nice. So by figuring out ways to get people to invest into your state, you build into them loyalty to that state. By making a child invest in the condition of their home, you're actually getting the child to commit to family community. The concept being a country or a community where the people are invested in it themselves to make it strong and nice is a well-protected and a secure community. A community where everything is just given is an entitled community, and that's a weak community community. There are so many applications to this principle. It applies to schools, to villages, to companies, really anything, any organization. And it's really a very practical tip on how to build loyalty, although it does seem really counterintuitive.
1: Well, in chapter 12, he's going to drop uh, internal threats, and he's going to turn his thoughts now to the outside ones. Uh, He talks about what to do when you have a threat from the outside, but you're not strong enough in and of yourself uh, to either be the aggressor or the defender. And of course, if you are building a state uh, or you're a new prince, this is going to be a problem because you don't already have all of your arms or resources built up. So this tip is about making alliances. This is tip number 11.
0: Alliances.
1: (laughs) When it comes to fighting off outside enemies, there are two options for making alliances. The problem is they are both bad. Um, In as much as possible, don't rely on mercenaries or auxiliary armies. Uh, Now, mercenaries are paid soldiers, people you pay to fight for you to help defend your state. And it's basically armies that you have outsourced. And uh, auxiliary armies aren't soldiers that you pay, but they are neighbors that are coming in to help you take on perhaps a common enemy. Um, in the American Revolution, the British hired German mercenaries to come over and fight uh, the American colonists. What Machiavelli says about mercenaries is true. They will fight, but if things get bad, they will run because it's not their fight. And I would like to point out one of the uh, tactics of the colonials in the Revolutionary War was to give away free farmland to some of the German <laughs> mercenaries. They seemed to be easily enticed.
0: Oh, I'm sure there's lots of modern applications to that. <laughs> yes,
1: there are. Um, and in that same war, the Americans used an auxiliary army. In our case, it was the French Now, the colonists got lucky in that it worked out, but the French were a more powerful army that came in and helped the Americans. And that's the risk you run if you don't have your own strength or arms, uh, as he calls calls it. Uh, Machiavelli points out if you use your limited financial resources to purchase mercenaries, they will flake if things get bad. If you use your friends to help you uh, as auxiliaries, they may help you, but then they may turn on you when the outside enemy is no longer the issue. And of course, anyone who's watched a political campaign or a season of Survivor, they, they know all about the nature of alliances and how backstabbing they can be. You
0: know, and that's what made that show so successful. We kind of loved watching these alliances and auxiliaries just kind of crumble before our very mm-hmm. eyes. And of course, Machiavelli gives examples from both antiquity and his current day in Italy. A princes that tried both things. And he comes back again to, is it Hyro? Hyro. Yeah, Hyro of Syracuse, that guy who he thinks did it right because he was able to fight his own battles and he found his own resources within his own people, which brings us back to that earlier Machiavellian principle. A good prince builds good foundations, except now he's going to expand on what is a good foundation. And he says it's good arms which I guess is muscle, and good laws, you know, a social agreement that everybody mm-hmm. can agree is fair.
1: Yes, good good weapons and good social contracts. and uh, Lots of these principles circle around again and again because they seem to build on each other. Uh, but this time he gives a, a new biblical example. He retells the story of David and Goliath in the Bible where David kills Goliath with a slingshot. Um, I will say it's strange to see that Machiavelli makes a detailed change in the biblical text, but in his retelling, the Bible story, he gives David an additional knife, something (laughs) that the Bible doesn't do, and it's like he gave him an extra weapon.
0: Well, the point being, weapons do matter to Machiavelli, and he emphasizes this over and over again. And We've talked about this last week. A man of virtue builds foundations, has resources, creates weapons. And now we're going to see is distrusting of anyone else who also has resources or weapons. He says in chapter 14 that it is unreasonable to assume that anyone who is armed will ever obey anyone who is unarmed. And it is at this point that we really see the book take a marked directional change. It's like he's saying this, these are the paths to power. These are the perils from within you're going to face, the elites within your own state. These are the perils you're going to face from without, other states, mercenaries, even armies of your friends. Basically, everyone who has any resources at all, you should think of as a competitor. Everyone, think of them as out there defending their state, expanding their own realm of influence, and on the inside and on the outside. And this is the dirty secret that nobody wants to talk to you about. Here are the dirty hand realities. And the test of your virtue is how do you navigate? Not necessarily the obvious threats, but the ones that you may not even see. And the rest of the book is about that. The game that we play while pretending not to play it.
1: (laughs) The art of masking your true intention. I guess so. Hmm. Uh, He starts using moral language in ways from here on out uh, that have really coined the term or enforced the term Machiavellian. Uh, And of course, the discussion has been for the last 500 years. It's about, is Machiavelli Machiavellian? Because Machiavellian, how we normally use the term today, means being extremely self-centered and evil. and Uh, There's a show called House of Cards, and the protagonist of the show is a man by the name of Frank Underwood. He really exemplifies everything awful you could ever take away from the next few chapters of this book. He's selfish and ruthless, a murderer, a liar. Uh, But eventually in the show, he gets to be the president of the United States. So there is that interpretation of the term Machiavellian that means exactly that. And it's certainly possible to read this book and understand what he's saying in exactly that way. But the more I read this book, the more convinced I become, that's maybe a first-pass understanding of it, really. I think a better way uh, to read this, uh, and if you haven't read uh, chapters 15 onward, uh, think of it as this. You are dealing with the Frank Underwoods of the world. They are your competitors no matter how kind they appear and uh, a man of great virtue understands the game and he won't let frank underwood destroy him or his state Uh, the quote is for a prince who wishes to maintain himself must learn not to be good and to use this knowledge and not use it according to the necessity of the case Uh, that language implies to me that the prince he's talking to is a good person in his core Uh, And he must learn how to deal with people who are, in fact, not good. And uh, chapter 15 is worth reading a couple times. He's going to say that there are human virtues that we all want to have, things like um, uh, generosity and mercy and honesty and religion. But we have to be careful in practicing them because bad people will use these things against us, the very things that you value. So you have to know what mercy really is and what it is not. And uh, that is what constitutes virtue or strength of character. Uh, just giving into people may not be mercy. In fact, it may actually be the opposite of mercy. Uh, giving away free stuff may not actually really be generous. In fact, it could be the opposite of generous and so forth. And when you talk about justice and mercy and generosity these are the great roman virtues of antiquity he's going to say that from here on out what do you do to defend these virtues may not be clear cut and what people do in the name of these virtues may also not be clear cut a person of virtue is careful uh if you're the only one playing by a certain set of moral rules you will not survive and now we have the problem with the dirty hands. And he ends the chapter by saying this, it is necessary that he should be prudent enough to avoid the scandal of those vices, which would lose him the state and guard himself if possible against those which will not lose it for him. But if not able to, he can indulge them with less scruple. And yet he must not mind incurring the scandal of those vices without which it would be difficult to save the state For if one considers well, it will be found that some things which seem virtues would, if followed, lead to one's ruin. And some others which appear vices result in one's greater security and well-being.
0: And of course, if that didn't make your head spin, I mean, (laughs) you can't be confused. Because it sounds like doublespeak. But after reading even, you know, the beginning of chapter 16, you can kind of understand, okay, I, I see what you mean by that. Chapter 16 is about... Being stingy versus being generous. And the general assumption is that if you're generous, people will love you. And if you're stingy, people won't. If you're a generous parent, your children will love you. If you're a generous ruler, your people will love you. But Machiavelli has already said in chapter 10 that doesn't happen. And now he's going to take it a step further to tip number
1: 12. Number 12, so many.
0: Which says, You must be very stingy with your resources and not be pressured to give things away as you will be pressured to do. And he's going to say, if you spend public resources, remember, those aren't yours. So for a prince, that means you're taking money, you're getting money from taxes, and you're actually spending the resources of others and you're redistributing wealth. And this would ultimately make you a hated person because You're going to have to steal from a lot of people to favor a few privileged groups that you want to favor. And when you steal from the general population to favor a few people that you're designating them as being more important and you're giving them special status, that's not going to get you popularity. And of course, if you're in charge of your own resources or other people's resources, Everyone is going to come to you with open hands saying, give it to me, give it to me. And there is a lot of pressure uh, in this position and it can give you, it can get you in a lot of trouble. If you, even if you spend your own money, once you start giving stuff away, the demands will only be for more and more and more. And your personal resources at some point will become depleted. And eventually you're going to have to cut somebody off. And when you cut someone off, that's no longer perceived as generosity. Now you just look mean and you're suddenly taking away something that somebody has forgotten you gave them. And now they just think they had a right to it. You turned off a spigot and this will make you hated because... Greed, basically, we all know this, is endless and can never be satisfied. And this is going to make you hated eventually and therefore destroyed. So what he's saying is the opposite is also true. It's not fun for people to call you tight or stingy or telling people no. We don't like to tell people no, especially if they're pressuring us, especially if they're elite and have power. It's not fun and it can cause a lot of problems. But telling people no doesn't get you hated the way taking people's things gets you hated the idea being your your enemies want you to have fewer and fewer resources because resources make strong foundations and strong foundations make for strong princes so There will be people out there that are going to encourage you to do the exact thing that will weaken you, and this behavior will be called a virtue, but it's actually a vice. (laughs) Did I confuse you? Does that Uh, even make sense? (laughs) Well,
1: you do have to camp out on this stuff for a while to to really grasp it. I know, you really do. It's super insightful, and it does take a moment to think through. I mean, to be generous, you can't be generous. (laughs)
0: I know. But
1: yes, it, it, it does make sense since we're talking about power. Or
0: to not be generous is to be generous. <laughs> right. uh,
1: and if you didn't get the doublespeak uh, when talking about generosity, he does it again in chapter 17 with this idea of mercy. Same principle. Uh, there's a great call for rulers to be merciful, uh, to be compassionate. Isn't isn't that the nature of a good person? Someone who cares for others and who wants to be kind? Isn't that compassionate? Uh, isn't a merciful society something that we all want? But he is going to say, people use the word compassionate for what is really indulgence and weakness. He says, a prince must not mind incurring the charge of cruelty for the purpose of keeping his subjects united and faithful. For, with a very few examples, he will be more merciful than those who, from excessive tenderness, allow disorders to arise And when formed, spring bloodshed and rapine. For these, as a rule, injure the whole community while the executions carried out by the prince injure only individuals. And he gives the example of a riot. He says, if you have a community where a riot occurs for whatever reason and you decide not to punish the people who committed the acts of violence because some group pressured you to be merciful, well, you've hurt lots of people in order to have compassion on a few. And he's going to say that that kind of thing will get you hated. People won't fear your authority because you've just shown you're a pushover, and more and more disorders will arise, and more and more murders will occur, and there will be uh, more instances of uh, rape, and everyone will be counting on what you call mercy, but he would call weakness. And again, you're a pushover. And this is where we get the famous Machiavelli tip of all, We'll call it Machiavelli tip number 13, lucky 13.
0: (laughs) This is the one that everybody knows.
1: It is safer to be feared than to be loved. (laughs) (laughs) So he goes on to say, Men have less scruple in offending one who makes himself loved than one who makes himself feared. For love is held by a chain of obligation, which men being selfish is broken whenever it serves their purpose. But fear is measured by a dread of punishment which never fails and he says people worry uh, if they enforce rules and punish those who wreak havoc on society that that people won't like them but he's going to say vertu uh, being strong means you don't really care about that you're strong enough to where you don't covet being loved so much that you allow yourself to be pushed around by people who don't respect you Uh, or the rule of law in their community. And this ultimately isn't safe, and it will lead people to hating you.
0: Well, first of all, before I make my comment about being too merciful, I think it's hysterical that in this chapter about mercy and disorder, he throws out a comment that seems slightly out of place, but it really catches my eye. And I think it needs to be tip number 14. He says this, Above all, he must abstain from taking the property of others, for men forget more easily the death of their father than the loss of their patrimony.
1: <laughs> hmm, interesting <laughs> observation. So yeah, don't take people's stuff. They will hate you I mean, for it's it. a
0: reoccurring theme. And I know for myself, if I've struggled for something and someone just takes it, it does make me hate them. I'm not sure that that could be underscored enough. But back to this idea of confusing mercy with being a pushover. My goodness, this is almost a cliche. We've seen this played out so many times in classrooms across the world. New teachers come in and... They're so full of compassion and they want to save the world and they want to have acts of generosity and mercy and but it's really weakness and indulgence. And every child is a sponge just waiting to be given the opportunity to absorb all the wisdom that I have to impart. <laughs> How
1: and many then, years does it take to get rid of that? <laughs>
0: I mean, and then they're just an utter shock. It takes about two weeks of getting cussed at and no one listening. I can even recall an extreme example when a student actually picked up up a teacher's overhead projector and threw it while other students were pushing around and then all at the same time videoing it and posting it on Snapchat. The teacher was no, I had no idea why she wasn't being respected. She'd done every single thing she'd been told to do in her, of course, education classes. She'd been so nice and loving and this had resulted and being despised, not loved. In the particular case that I just referenced, this particular teacher, poor thing, had to quit her job. It just wasn't even safe. Machiavelli says at the end of chapter 17, men love at their own free will, but fear at the will of the prince. And a wise prince must rely on what is in his power and not in what is in the power of others. And he must contrive to avoid Incuring hatred as he has explained. So again, the general idea being people who want you to fail will call for you to be more and more what they call merciful, but they don't actually want you to be merciful. They're playing around with the meaning of words. They want you to be weaker and weaker and they're just calling it a good thing, but it's not a good thing. It's not being merciful. Aristotle, the greatest rhetorician of all times, makes this point in his book of rhetoric that's been around for ages. Just change the name of the meaning of words and people will fall for it.
1: Yes, manipulation (laughs) of language. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ultimately, uh, this gets us back to the Borgias or the the Frank Underwoods. Oh gosh, (laughs) truly. Uh, The Borgias have been generally viewed by history as despicable people. But Machiavelli thinks they were fantastic examples of good leaders in spite of being so treacherous. And uh, let me give you a two-minute rundown on this political family. Uh, the Borgias were uh, a noble family who somehow made the jump into political prominence, particularly um, Alexander the Sixth, who turned the papacy into a dominant political entity more so than a spiritual one. Uh, he was extremely bold, and that is what uh, Machiavelli really liked about him. In fact, he's the only pope in Catholic history to have had a mistress in the Vatican and had children while being a pope. Um, He had three children, Cesare, uh, who's been rumored to have killed his brother, but no one knows, and Lucretia, his sister, both were murderous. Lucretia was skilled at poisoning, apparently. And Cesare was just as vicious and boldly vicious, but they were both successful and they worked their way into high orders and they were able to maintain their state. They had no problem killing competitors, but apparently they ran their states well and kept the people happy. So according to Machiavelli, Alexander VI did nothing else but deceive men. He thought of nothing else and found the occasion for it. No man was ever more able to give assurances or affirm things with stronger oaths, and no man observed them less. Uh, However, he always succeeded in his deceptions, as he well knew this aspect of things.
0: Well, what the heck did Machiavelli like about this treacherous family? Why do their names come up over and over again as being good princes? I mean, is this just total irony? Does he not care about their atrocities, or did he was he just blind to them because they were winners, Frank Underwood uh, style?
1: Well, that's a good question, and people don't agree on the answer, but uh, what best I can see, and when I think of what he talks about as being good, their good qualities. I think he liked the fact that they were bold and were not pushed around, something that Machiavelli thinks is a much more pervasive and difficult problem in leadership. For Machiavelli, a prince is more likely to lose the state from being too weak than being too aggressive, from being uh, too naive than being too cynical. And again, we're going to use some gender terminology here that would have gotten Machiavelli canceled today. Uh, but he saw as the great problem of leaders is that they were effeminate. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and he wanted them to be manly. Well, of
0: course he did. <laughs> to have
1: virtue. Sorry, Christy, that they saddled the word effeminate with weekly connotations. I know.
0: I mean, he's clearly not the only person to do that. But I want to get back to this idea of telling uh, the truth because it is kind of the entire idea behind chapter 18 where he literally seems to be saying... Telling the truth is weak.
1: (laughs) Well, again, I want to return to the thought that things are often the opposite of what they appear. Machiavelli is really good about pointing that out. And he very much thinks a person who always does what he promises and keeps his word can be trapped. And what appears to be a good thing can be used against you. And he's going to say that uh, circumstances change. He says, princes to have done great things have had little regard for good faith, and have been able to astuteness to confuse men's brains. (laughs) Uh, uh, He also says, a prudent ruler ought not to keep faith when by so doing it, it would be against his interest. He goes on to say, if men were all good, this precept would not be a good one, but as they are bad and would not observe their faith with you, so you are not bound to keep faith with them. And we get into this problem, the problem of dirty hands. He says a prince must imitate the fox and the lion. The lion side is bold and scary, being feared, but the fox side is to be sneaky and recognize traps.
0: True. And I want to go back to chapter 15, that very important turning put in the book, and reread this phrase. He says that a prince must learn, and I quote, how not to be good. He doesn't say that a prince must learn to be evil. And I think that's an interesting choice of words. I don't think virtuous princes are evil. That's not the thing. Why would he imply that the Medici are evil? I mean, that's who he's addressing this to. What he means is, and I find this to be a scandalous thought myself, but he means this idea that sometimes it's not possible to be good in order to do good. The traits that we think of as a good person have the opportunity to prevent you from doing the right thing. And this controversial idea leads us to Machiavellian tip number 15. 15. (laughs) We're Mm. up there. One that does appear highly immoral to me, but here it is. Be prepared to lie without guilt because your opponent is absolutely lying to you and about you. And today we call this fake news, <laughs> so much deception, but he actually says, it's not possible to be honest. Your enemies will use your honesty to destroy you. Even if you want it to be honest, it's not possible. He says, your image is everything. A prince must take great care that nothing goes out of his mouth, which is not full of the above named five qualities. And to see and hear him, he should seem to be all mercy, all faith, integrity, humanity, and religion. And nothing is more necessary than to seem to have this last quality for men in general, judge more by the eyes than by the hands for everyone can see, but very few have to feel everybody sees what you appear to be. You feel
1: what you are. Oh, the presenting self and the authentic self, back to psychology. Um, and yes, the famous men judge more by the eyes than by the hands.
0: Well, during Machiavelli's day, there was a famous tale about two birds, an old bird and a young bird. A man keeps some birds in a cage, and this is how the story goes. And every day he takes out one of those birds and he kills the bird because he needs to eat it. Well, the young unexperienced bird, uh, looks up into the man's eyes and he sees that he's crying. He's crying while killing the bird. And he says this to the older bird. Uh, but the older bird comes back to him and he says, judge not by the eyes, but by the hands. In other words, Look what he's doing. He's killing birds. Don't judge by the fact that he's crying.
1: (laughs) Right. And underscoring the whole idea that people lie with words but tell the truth with actions. And there's a couple things to take away from this. Uh, First of all, look at what people do, even if they will have all kinds of emotions. I mean, they can be real or they may be manufactured for an audience. People will do what is in their own best interest, regardless. Secondly, uh, an old bird will ignore what people say, uh, what emotion they display, and they will only judge by what people do. But thirdly, most people aren't like the wise old birds. Uh, They're fooled by the tears, and that's what Machiavelli is warning the new prince to be aware of. Forget the words. Don't trust them. Don't even trust them coming out of your own mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be faithful to them because you don't know the people you are dealing with. Judge them by their hands. And when you see the hands change, no matter what you have previously said, you change your behaviors too. And that is virtue, according to Machiavelli.
0: And then he concludes with this famous Machiavellian nod to relativism, which we will begin with next week. I know we've gone through a lot of stuff, Mm. 15 principles, but I'll end with this quote. The end justifies the means. He says, and again, I quote, preach peace and good faith, but he really is a great enemy to both. Mm. <laughs> Yikes. No wonder this guy was banned just for this chapter alone. But again, even this is double speak. And next week we will conclude the paradoxical and controversial and sometimes even confusing advice Made to us by this man in the first book of politics in the Western tradition.
1: And we'll continue on that journey of, is it satire or is it advice? (laughs) Or is it both? Anyway, thanks for being with us today. Um, Check us out on our Facebook page, on our Instagram page. Look us up at com. We have lots of teaching materials there on all the books we've done. And again, thanks for being with us. Peace out.